It has been some time since we've been together in the book of Exodus, but as is our custom, we're going to pick back up right where we left off in chapter 4 of Exodus. We'll be looking uh, this evening at Exodus chapter 4, verse 18 to verse 31. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. Exodus chapter 4, starting at verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads. And worshipped. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we come to you this evening and we ask that you would open up your word to us. But for the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, we cannot obtain the wisdom that we need from your word. And so we ask that we would truly have ears to hear and eyes to see. And that through the power of faith, which is your gift to us, O Lord, we would know your will. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Have you ever wondered why God uses weak and sinful people in the building up of his kingdom? God's not exactly efficient in this respect. After all, why did God go to all of the time and effort previously convincing Moses that he was going to be able, by God's power, to redeem Israel? Wouldn't it have been much simpler and easier for God to do the work himself? 
Why didn't he just whisk Israel out of Egypt? Perhaps you felt that way yourself. Why does God need me to do evangelism? Why does God need me to help others in need? It's so difficult for me, and it would be so easy for him. Besides, God knows better than I do the need of this person or of that person, and we even pray that way. Lord, you know the hearts of others. Why is this? The answer to this question, I believe, is found in our text this evening. It is a portion of God's grace that he not only redeems sinners, but he continues to show grace to those sinners by using them in his glorious work of redemption. In that very process, God is continually molding his children into the image of his servant, his dear son. Today, Lord willing, we will see that God not only calls his servants out of their Egypt of sin and misery, he also calls his servant back into Egypt to show others who he is. I'd like us to see four things about the servant of God this evening from our text. First, we'll see the servant prepared. And then we will see the servant sent. Thirdly, we will see the servant as he loses sight. And then finally, we'll see the servant blessed. Let's begin then by looking at the servant as he is prepared by God. We take up our story here in verse 18, but we have to remember that this comes in a context. There is a connection to the whole of the story of Exodus that we have seen so far. God has seen the the cries of his people, and he has remembered his covenant... And he is sending his servant to deliver his people from their bondage. And we saw previously, in verses 15 through 17, the promise of God to Moses. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and you, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. God has promised Moses that he will be with him, that he will give him Aaron, and that they will speak, and that the words of God will be brought to Pharaoh. And so now we see a change. The skeptical Moses is now ready to obey. There is a marked contrast. Look at verse 18 and compare it with verse 13. In verse 18, Moses says, he goes back to Jethro and he says, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt. Now this is very different from just a few verses ago in verse 13 where Moses says, oh my Lord, please send someone else. There's a marked contrast here. Moses responds to the promise of God by acting in faith. The time for hesitation is over. The text is very brief and plain. Moses went. Moses leaves the presence of God and he is ready and willing to obey, to go back to Egypt. As a matter of fact, he gives a bare factual description to Jethro of what he is going to do. It is It is interesting, we might have expected Moses to come to Jethro and to say something like, you're never going to believe in a million years what happened to me. There was a bush that was on fire and wasn't consumed. And God himself talked to me. 
And he showed me signs and wonders. And he's told me that I'm the one that's supposed to redeem Israel. But Moses says none of this. He just says, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. He's very purposeful. He is directed toward the task. Now, we have to remember, as we've said before, this could not have been an easy thing for Moses to have done. It's actually very likely the thing he desired least in the world to do. That is to go back to Egypt. He'd been away for 40 years. He had left with a death sentence on his head. And God has told him to leave the only family he has known for 40 years. All of his in-laws, all of his wife's relatives. And to go back to Egypt. Now Moses had in the past been reluctant to obey. God had told him, now go. And the response had been in the past, who am I to go? Then he had said, who shall I say has sent me? How do I know, Lord? And then he further said, but what if they don't believe me, Lord? And then finally he tries his last ditch effort to dodge. I don't have sufficient gifts, Lord. I don't have a tongue to speak. Send someone else. Now what has made the difference between the hesitant Moses, full of excuses and the Moses now who is dedicated to go. I would put it to you that the difference is not in Moses himself. It's in God and his word. And so that's important for us to remember as we find challenges in our life, as we are hesitant to do things. It's not because Moses is special that he went. Actually, if Moses had his way, he wouldn't have gone. It's because of God and his word. The same God with the same word that you and I have for the challenges in our own life. God has patiently dealt with Moses. He has gently answered all of Moses' objections, as frivolous as they may seem. He has graciously brought Moses from faith to faith. This is kind of a living example of what the Bible calls here a little, there a little, moving onward in faith. Remember the context of the passage before us. God has given Moses his word, his promises, his presence, and reminded Moses of his covenant. I dare say that where many of us would have given up in frustration, thrown up our hands and said, well, Moses, if you don't want to go, I'll find somebody better than you. God instead perseveres. He is the potter and he knows the clay. God knows exactly what work of grace is in store for his servant. And now it seems that Moses finally understands this as well. It's not just that Moses is persevering. He has been changed by God. And I think we can see this in a picture of an object that Moses carries. Moses has what our text calls the staff of God in his hand. We see this in verse 20. He loads up his wife and his sons on a donkey... And he takes them to Egypt, and the text tells us that he has the staff of God in his hand. Now, if we were coming to this text without any context and without knowing the story, we might think, the staff of God, that's got to be ten feet tall. And it's got to be overlain with gold. And it probably pulses with power and with light. 
And anyone who sees it is afraid of it. It's the staff of God, right? We think that's how God must work, overwhelming people. But the reality is we know that this staff of God is a simple shepherd's tool. It's what Moses used to take animals to and from water. There's nothing actually significant about it at all. Earlier in the chapter, when God says to Moses, what do you have? He says, a staff. We might put it this way. Moses says, I've got a stick. I've got a stick that I use to poke at animals. That's what I've got. But by the word of God alone, this staff becomes the staff of God, the power of God to bring Signs and wonders before the Egyptians. Now, there is an analogy here even to Moses. By the word of God alone, Moses becomes a messenger of God and an aid to the faith of the people of God. He becomes one who is a deliverer, the one who will do the signs. Just as the simple staff has been completely transformed by God's will and desire... From a common shepherd's tool to the staff of God, so Moses is completely transformed from a simple shepherd to the deliverer of Israel. We then see in verse 18 that Moses is no longer making any excuses. We see the transforming work of God in Moses in two things. First, that he's no longer making excuses. And second, that he's no longer afraid. Moses leaves the presence of God and he goes to Jethro and immediately asks leave to go to Egypt. Moses' focus is no longer on himself. It is on God and the task prepared for him. He doesn't boast to Jethro that he's seen God. He doesn't say he's God's chosen servant. Instead, his focus is on God's people. What does he say to Jethro? My brothers in Egypt... I need to see if they're still alive. That's where his focus is. Now, why does Moses go to Jethro? We might say, Moses, you've been told by God to go to Egypt. Get after it. Why are you bothering to have a conversation with Jethro? What if Jethro were to say no? You don't need to be bothered with this. You've got a higher calling. And I think too often, sometimes in our day and age... Our zeal for Christian ministry can take that kind of viewpoint. That is, that because we need to serve the Lord, our family needs to be put on the back burner. That our responsibilities to others don't matter anymore because we're going after a higher calling. We don't need to worry about our friends. We don't need to think about our family. We can put them all behind us and they can deal with the difficulties because we have something to do for God. I want you to notice that the Bible doesn't show that kind of service to the Lord. Moses instead goes to his father-in-law because when God calls us to serve, he calls us not to forget our duty to others, especially our family. It is too easy to excuse our behaviors to others by saying we're doing God's work. Not so here, Moses. We see in verse 20 that Moses is no longer afraid. God knows Moses' frame. He knows the challenges that are before him. But notice the tender mercy of God. In all of Moses' complaints and excuses, 
Not once has he mentioned his fears. Moses has come up with every excuse he can, but he's never once said what's probably first on his mind, Lord, I'm afraid. I don't want to go back to Egypt. It's dangerous. But the thing is, God knows Moses' fears. You may be in a place right now where you are afraid. So afraid that you can't share your fear with anyone else. Not even your spouse or your parents or your children. You think that there's no way that you can give word to those fears. You need to take comfort from the fact that God knows those fears. Even if you haven't expressed them. God knows them and he's there to help you, to encourage you. There's a reason why the Apostle Peter says we are to cast all our fears and cares upon the Lord. Because he cares for us. Now Moses tells, God tells Moses exactly what he wanted to hear to steal his heart. Moses is not sure what will happen to him. And God says to him, all of those who have sought your life are dead. Now I want you to notice how God says this in verse 19. All of the men who sought your life are dead. They cannot seek after you. It's almost as if God anticipates Moses' objections. Well, what about this man? He's dead. What about the other man who sought my life? He's dead too. Well, surely this man. No, he's dead too. Every single one, Moses. You don't have anyone to fear because they're all dead. In my providential sovereignty, there is no one who still seeks your life. Now think of what a wave of relief would come over Moses to know that he could go back and those who sought his life We're not looking to kill him. And as a result, Moses trusts God enough to pack up his wife and his two sons and to take them with him into Egypt. Now, when God calls us to serve, we have to commit our family to him as well. Now, that's the hardest of things, isn't it? So often we can trust God with our own lives, we can trust him with our jobs with our finances. But perhaps the most difficult thing to do is to place our loved ones in his hands to know that there's nothing that we can do but trust the Lord. And so God sends his servant into Egypt. And so we see here now the servant sent. And we also see something for our comfort. You may remember that when we first started looking at the book of Exodus... I reminded you that Exodus is more than just an epic story. It is more than just a recounting of good against evil. It is typical of our redemption, of our exodus from sin and death. And so here we have a strong glimpse into that, for verse 19 is strongly reminiscent of a similar verse in the New Testament. In verse 19, God tells Moses, Go, for all those who have sought your life are dead. This sounds very familiar to the passage in Matthew 2, where we read, Herod was dead, and behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, 
Take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young Christ's life are dead. So this is very reminiscent of the comfort that God gives to us through our redemption story. God sends Moses and he first tells him what to do. We see this in the beginning of verse 21. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all of the miracles that I have put in your power. Now Moses is not only sent, he is told to do the miracles not only before the Israelites, but also before Pharaoh himself. Moses is not to hold anything back. He is to do all the miracles, God says. No more, no less. God doesn't leave Moses to wonder what he's to do. This would be a great comfort to Moses as he is in Egypt. He doesn't have to worry, well, should I do this miracle or should I do this other miracle? And and, and which one should I leave out? And how should I start? No, instead, he knows that all of the miracles that God has given to him, he is to perform. He doesn't need to decide. God has done this for him. So it is with us. You may wonder, if I was going to talk to someone about the Lord Jesus Christ, what do I do? What do I leave out? What do I focus on? Well, we know from Matthew 28 that we are commanded to teach all that I have commanded you. Jesus tells us that we are to declare the whole of his counsel, the whole of his doctrine. We're not to worry about what we think is more important than something else. That God has given to us his word and we are to bring all of his word to the world. God further reminds Moses that he will be with him because the miracles that Moses has are those that God has put in his hand. God not only tells Moses what to do, he tells him what to say again in verses 22 and 23. He's fulfilling this promise to Moses that he will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God tells Moses exactly what he is to say to Pharaoh. And the message is extremely important. God says that Moses is to say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord. Now, this is important. This is the first instance of this prophetic phrase that is used more than 400 times in the Bible. Now, notice that Moses is to begin with Pharaoh by speaking the word of the Lord. He's not to find some kind of common ground. We might imagine that Moses might have thought it would be wise to go and to speak to Pharaoh and say, you know, I know that the Egyptian economy is a very complex thing. I was prince once. I know that it may not be the first thing that you would think about to let some slaves go, but let's see if we could come to an understanding. Let's, let's talk about this. No, instead, God tells Moses he is simply to declare his word to Pharaoh, to declare the covenant God. Moses is to inform Pharaoh of God's relationship with Israel. They are his firstborn. They are dear to him. Now, Pharaoh would understand this, Because his firstborn would be the heir to his throne. And without a doubt, he would dote on his firstborn. He would spoil his firstborn. And there is a very real threat to Pharaoh from God. 
God is claiming his sovereign right over his son. Woe be to the Pharaoh who resists him. Now God also tells Moses what the result will be. We see this at the end of verse 21. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, Moses is told the result of what will happen, that Pharaoh won't let Israel go. Why does God say this? This is not exactly motivational speaking. I'm going to send you out on this task, and by the way, you are sure to fail. Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. This is not exactly what we would think to do. But the reality is God says this to Moses for his own comfort because he knows Moses will meet with disappointment. And God is telling Moses that this refusal by Pharaoh is a part of God's plan. It is not the defeat of God's plan. It is not Moses' fault. Moses might have been tempted to think, if I'd only given different words, if I'd only gone at a different time, if I'd only taken Nathan with me instead of Hezekiah, then maybe Pharaoh would have listened. No, instead God says, it is a part of my plan for Pharaoh to reject your word. This is the same for us as we think about sharing the Lord Jesus Christ with others. The Bible verse is true that says, Many are called, few are chosen. So don't be surprised if you meet with disappointment as you tell others about the Lord and about salvation. That's in God's hands. It's His plan. You just need to be faithful in bringing the word. You don't bring about the result. Don't let that discourage you. Don't let six, seven, a dozen, twenty rejections dampen your zeal for the Lord. It's in God's hands. Remember in Exodus chapter 3 verse 19 that God told Moses he was sure Pharaoh would not let Israel go? Now God is telling Moses that the reason why he's sure is because he has willed it. And God doesn't know the future because he has some kind of crystal ball or because he can look outside of time. He knows the future because he is sovereign over it. That would have been a great source of comfort to Moses. That should be a great source of comfort to you. The next thing we see is that God's servant loses sight. We see this in verses 24 through 26. Now, I have to warn you at the outset that this is one of the most difficult passages in all of the Old Testament. Old Testament Hebrew scholars aren't sure what this is exactly saying. They're not sure when the text talks about he, who the he is. Is the he Moses? Is the he his son? Is the he God? Who is the he? And what is going on here? And what does all of this mean about the circumcision and the blood and the feet and what's going on? So I will tell you that if you had the time, I could tell you 20 commentators, 20 different opinions on this passage. But I think instead, I'm going to try to distill down for you what I think this means in this context in a way that's applicable for you and for me. I think what's going on here is Moses, during the time he was in Midian, had not seen to it that his sons were circumcised. 
that Moses surely should have that was a sign of being a part of the covenant people of God. And surely Moses and his family were a part of the people of God. Moses is being sent to redeem them. And so Moses has not seen to it that his sons have been given the covenant sign. Now we might ask why. Again, we're looking a bit into the text because it's not clear, but it would seem to me to make sense that perhaps Moses is indulging his families. You could just imagine the conversation that might have started on the birth of his son, where Moses speaks to his wife Zipporah and she says, You want to do what? Why? To my son? Are you nuts? We've never done that. What's the reason for doing that? That could be harmful. I'm not taking the risk with my son. You could just imagine this. And then we might imagine that Moses might have overly indulged his wife. This is the dual edge of what we spoke about earlier. We saw earlier the importance of not abandoning our worldly relations and our duties to our family. But here what we see is the importance of preventing our fondness from them from cooling our heat for God. And so we have to understand the importance of first principles. We might think that the task that Moses is on is much more important than whatever Moses is being waylaid in the lodging place for. Redeeming the people of Israel would seem far more important than one child's circumcision, right? And if, as the text seems to say, God sought to kill Moses because he had failed to obey in giving his son the covenant sign, we might say, what are you up to, God? You've just spent all this time training Moses. He's got to do this great task. And this little thing has come up, and you're making such a big deal about it. But what we see here is that the circumcision of his son is a covenantal task. It is a part and parcel of obedience to God. It is a sign of unity with God's people. How can Moses declare that he is a part of the people of Israel when he does not give his children the sign of being an Israelite? The thing that would mark them out from all of the Egyptians. You could just imagine an Israelite might find out about this and say, listen, we circumcised our sons and that was great risk. If we could have passed them off as Egyptians, they wouldn't be slaves. But we mark them out as Israelites. What are you doing? And so God anticipates this. We also see, I think, something else that's important. We see the importance of communion with God's people. Now, solitude can be helpful. It has its advantages. We saw this in earlier in chapter 3 with Moses' preparation for the task that God had given to him, that he was able, to, through solitude, to understand who he was and the task that was before him. But solitude also has its disadvantages. We need others around us to keep us accountable and to remind us of the things we already know. How much easier it would have been for Moses if there would have been others around him who could have reminded him of his covenantal duty, who could have drawn him close to the word of God. And so it is with you and with me. There's a reason why there are no Lone Ranger Christians. There's a reason why God has called his people together to be a part of the church. Because we need each other. We can't do it on our own. God knows this. 
We also need to understand from our text here that omissions of commandments from the Lord are sins. Oftentimes we think that a sin is only when we do something that is wrong in God's sight. But it is just as much a sin to fail to do something God has commanded. If we fail to love our neighbors, we are sinning. If we fail to honor our parents, we are sinning. If we fail to tell the truth about someone, we are sinning. Matthew Henry puts it this way. Particularly the contempt and the neglect of the seals of the covenant. For it is a sign that we undervalue the promises of the covenant. So rejecting the sign means that we don't value the covenant itself. And God takes notice of the sins of his people. Notice that God here is dealing with Moses, the same man that he has prepared to go and redeem his people from the idolatrous Egyptians. The final thing that we see is God's servant blessed. Now God has prepared Moses, but also in the background God has prepared Aaron. And this is opened up to us in verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So what happens here is as Moses has left the only family he's known for 40 years, as he's coming into Egypt, a place of fear, a place where he's not sure what will happen, he is reunited with his brother. He is reunited with his family. I can't help but think that this is a picture of what our Lord Jesus Christ says in Luke 18, where he says, No one who gives up father or mother will not be blessed manyfold. You see, Moses had to leave his family in Midian, and here God brings him back his family that had been lost. More than that, there is support now for the task that Moses has. He is not alone any longer. He has Aaron with him. And they have been prepared in every way for the task. They are prepared in mind. God tells Moses and Aaron exactly what to say. They are prepared with their will because God tells them not to fear. And they are prepared with their emotions. He has reunited them as a family. And so what we see here is that Moses' obedience to God brings blessings. God's servant sees God's word fulfilled. Moses and Aaron go to the elders of Israel and we see here what happens. They gather together and in verse 30, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people and the people believed. Do you see that? I think sometimes we skip over that in the great battle between Moses and Pharaoh. And we go back and forth and back and forth. And we think Moses has had no success. No, Moses has had the most important success that he could hope for at this point. The people believe him. They believe God. What a blessing to God's servant to see God at work. And what's the result of all of this? Look at verse 31. The blessing that obedience brings is worship. They bowed their heads and worshipped. 
You see, God blesses His servants in their work. And He blesses them that they might see His success of His will. So what does this mean then for us, briefly in conclusion? First, we are to go where God calls us. We're not to think about whether we can come up with a better plan. When God calls us, we are to go. Secondly, we are to go in the path of obedience. Thirdly, we are to put God first. And then all these things will be added to you. Don't worry about the other things. Put God first and he will add these other things to you. And we see that as the Lord works through his servants, he works through a pattern of first belief, and then comfort, and then finally worship. That's a model for our life as we serve the Lord. We are to believe him and trust him. And that brings a comfort to our soul and our mind. And that brings us to where we ought to be, our chief end, to worship and glorify God. Let's pray.